please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Brandon, for helping lead us in worship. Hope that you're, you have some exciting Fourth of July plans today. We're very grateful to God for our country, for the ability to worship together this morning. As you please stand with me, we're going to read Luke chapter 6, looking at this Sermon on the Plain again. We've been spending several weeks in this section of Scripture last week. We looked at this same uh, beginning part of the Sermon on the Plain. We'll continue to uh, look at this section of Scripture together this morning. Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 20. It says, And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You may be seated. May God encourage and instruct us through his word this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's continued blessing on our time together this morning. And Father, we do ask your blessing on our time this morning. This July 4th, we are very mindful of the blessings of of being and citizens. For those of us who are citizens of the United States of America, we are mindful of the blessings that you have given us as as members of of a church as well. And Father, we would ask not that we love this kingdom, but you would cause us to love your kingdom. As we think about the kingdom of God and how one experiences happiness in that kingdom, our desire, we pray, would more and more be for your kingdom and less and less for this earthly kingdom. We pray that we would be faithful servants, citizens of your heavenly country as we exist in this one. We pray for the things that are going on in our country that cause your glory to be diminished. We pray for our men and women who are in our military, who are are serving. We pray that your protection would be upon them. We pray for those who are in positions of power in our government. We pray that you would turn the hearts of our our kings, our our leaders, our politicians, and cause them to seek righteousness and, and justice and morality. Father, we pray for your gospel message to penetrate the hearts of the people in this country. We pray that the people that you put in the sphere, our sphere of influence would uh, proclaim your name and worship you. We pray that you'd help us, our hearts to be open this morning as we look more closely at your word. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we know, we're in Luke chapter 6, but before we dive into Luke chapter 6, let's take a quick detour over to John chapter 12, and you can keep your finger there in Luke chapter 6. Turn over to John chapter 12, and in John chapter 12, 
John is talking about how some of the people have responded to Jesus in unbelief. They've seen his signs, they've heard his teaching, and yet they've failed to believe in him. And John tells us that their failure to believe in Jesus is in perfect accordance with God's predestined plan. And then we come to a story of tragic faithlessness here in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 42. John chapter 12, verse 42, John writes this. Again, he's talking about people who failed to believe in Jesus, but he says in verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the, the synagogue. And then here's the tragic part. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see what happened there? Here's some authorities. They see the signs that Jesus performs. They hear his message, and they believe that what he is saying is true. They come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the chosen one of God, and then, even though they believe in him, they make a tragic miscalculation. They say, look, the joy of being in the synagogue, my position of authority in the synagogue, the glory that comes from man in being that, in that prestigious position is greater than the glory that I would receive from God. The approval of man is of more value to me than the approval of God himself. And if it's true that they were genuine believers, you can imagine the struggle, the internal struggle that took place within them, the joy that they were robbed of as they pursued the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And imagine if today you had the opportunity to talk to them what their testimony would be, what they would tell you. I believe they would tell you, look, for a period of time, we made a tragic miscalculation. We sought the approval of men who have been dead almost 2,000 years now. We sought prestige in a culture that didn't last many decades beyond that period of time that we lived. We lost the opportunity to seek, at that point in our lives, the approval of God. We lost the opportunity to participate in his kingdom that has continued the past 2,000 years, will be consummated someday, and will continue on into eternity. We missed out. My question for you this morning as we begin to look at Luke chapter 6 is this. Could what John wrote of the authorities in John chapter 12 be written of you as well? Could John say that you value the approval of man, the glory that comes from man, more than you value the approval, the glory that comes from God? In your workplace, as you think about the things that you do in your work and the desires that you have in your work, is your goal to receive the approval, the titles, the promotions, the things that come from your employer, your co-workers, the accolades that, that can take place in your job, is that of more value to you? Does it drive what you do in the workplace more than seeking the approval of God? Does it affect what you say, what conversations you're willing to to have with other people about your faith in Christ, 
Does the approval of man mean more to you in the workplace than the approval of God? In your home, as you talk with your spouse and your children and your parents or your siblings, is the approval of your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings of greater value to you than the approval that comes from God? In your neighborhood, is the approval of man of greater value to you than the approval that comes from God? In the church, the ministries that you're involved in, the things that you do, the conversations that you have, you're, you're giving, all those things, are, they, are you more concerned with receiving the approval of other people in the church than you are with pursuing the approval, the glory that comes from God himself? We're in a section of scripture, the Sermon on the Plain, and we're at the beginning of the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus is giving some blessings and some woes. And for every blessing that he gives, there's a corresponding woe. So last week we saw, you know, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich, blessed are the hungry, woe to those who are full now. And as we looked last week at happiness in the kingdom, we came to kind of this main statement as we looked at both that applies to last week and this week, uh, we saw this idea. Happy are you, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. Happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. Last week, we looked at that statement and we applied it to the material pleasures that this world offers. Uh, today, uh, I'd add this statement to this kind of main idea, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom and, and have, abandoned, have abandoned the quest to find satisfaction in the prestige that this kingdom offers. This morning, as we look at the blessings and accompanying woes and the rest of this introduction to the Sermon on the Plain, I tell you this, happy are you who find your satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom and have abandoned the quest, the false quest, the empty quest to find satisfaction in the prestige, in the titles, in the accolades that exist in this kingdom. For I tell you, this kingdom is temporary, Christ's kingdom is eternal. Well, let's turn to the text, and we're going to look, first of all, at verse 21, and it's accompanying woe in verse 25, and the first blessing we see here is, blessed are you who weep. Look at, look at uh, verse 21, the last part of it with me. It says this, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh, and then the accompanying woe is the last half of verse 25, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Remember last week, as we looked at the word blessing, we saw that this word blessing means, means happy or, or fortunate or privileged. Happy, fortunate, privileged are you, Jesus says, who weep now. That word weep means to have deep sorrow, to have, to have anguish. And it's an anguish that's often uh, manifested uh, physically as, as, one, as one tears up, as one cries, as one laments. Happy are you, blessed are you, Jesus says, who are weeping now. What does Jesus mean by that? I don't believe that he's saying, uh, happy are you, blessed are you, who are just really gloomy and always sad, right? Where we talked a few weeks ago about how the natural state of a person who's in God's kingdom should be optimistic. You know, we're, we're excited as we anticipate the fulfillment of Christ's kingdom. And yet, we see here, happy are those who mourn. So what does Jesus mean? Well, I believe 
when he's talking about mourning or, or sorrow here, what he's saying is, blessed are you who have a sense of sorrow as you consider the state of affairs in the world today. Happy are you who look at the world around you and recognize that things are off, that things are not as they're supposed to be. Happy are you who look at the sinful condition that the world is in and have a godly discontentment or sorrow as you view the condition that the world is in. Uh, Throughout Scripture, we see examples of people responding in sorrow to the sinful conditions of the world around them. Uh, We see people having sorrow whenever a loved one passes away. We see uh, people who have sorrow as they see that other people are about to commit evil or going to commit evil. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, Elisha is looking at a man named Haziel, and, and as Elisha looks at him, he begins to weep, and Haziel says, what's your deal? Why are you crying? And Elisha says, I'm, I'm sorrowful because I know the great atrocities you're about to commit against Israel. And so as he sees this, this evil that's going to be committed, he, he responds by weeping. Also in Scripture, we see that, that people uh, weep, they cry, there's sorrow as they consider their own uh, personal sin. In Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, as God calls people to return to him, he calls them to return to him with weeping. Uh, Psalm 137, verse 1, uh, we see people weeping as God's glory is diminished. We see in verse 1, the, the psalmist says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And he goes on and he talks about how they're no longer going to be able to, to worship God in Zion and God's chosen city. And so as they contemplate their inability to worship God, there's a response of sorrow. People who weep recognize that things are off. They recognize that things aren't quite as they're supposed to be. And Amos chapter 5, God says this as he tells the people, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. You're, you're trying to offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings. I'm not going to accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The, he calls their worship noise. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. Then he says this in verse 24, but let justice Roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You see, the person that weeps, the person that mourns as they look at their culture around them, is the person who recognizes that the world is not the way that it is supposed to be. They see God's glory diminished. They see worship not happening as it's supposed to happen. They see, see injustice. They see immorality. And the person who's blessed recognizes that this is wrong, that this is not how things are supposed to be, and they respond with a godly discontent, a godly weeping. What does Jesus say, the last part of verse 21? He says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The person who right now looks at the kingdom around them and says, this kingdom is not God's kingdom the way that it's supposed to be. I'm sad about that. I'm I'm mourning it. God says this, look, the person who weeps now is going to be the person who laughs later. There's going to be a reversal that takes place. And we see this throughout Scripture. 
Uh, for example, in Psalm 126, it says, the, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our, our mouth was filled with laughter. Verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in Negev. Those who, verse 5, who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your iniquity is pardoned. You've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Isaiah, or see, Jeremiah 31, 13, God says, I'm going to turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them. I will give them gladness for sorrow. Luke 18, 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. The person who weeps now, who mourns now, receives joy later. And the reason for that is that God's kingdom is eternal. God's kingdom is the coming kingdom. And a person who's discontent now, who weeps now, recognizes that a better kingdom is on its way. Now, there's an accompanying woe, though, right? He says this in verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you who laugh now, that is, woe to you who are in the culture that you're in right now and have no sense that things are wrong, no sense that things are off, who can look at injustice, who can look at immorality, who can look at God's glory being diminished and have no sort of of discomfort with that. Woe to you who laugh now, Jesus says, because you're going to weep and mourn later. This word laugh carries with it the idea sometimes of of scorn or derision. It's a person in a position of power sometimes who looks upon the misfortunes of others, the, the, uh, the poor circumstances that someone else is in, and laughs or, or scorns them. Woe to you, Jesus says, because those of you who laugh now are going to mourn later. Remember we talked about reversal, the poor person now who, who mourns is going to laugh later. Well, the person who laughs now is also going to experience reversal. They're going to mourn later. James chapter 5, Jesus, James says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back in the last, uh, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned. You've murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. In other words, the person who experiences the pleasures of life now that is not focused on the kingdom of God, is so in love with the pleasures of this kingdom that they have no sense that things are evil, woe to that person because they're going to mourn later. I want you to keep your finger in Luke chapter 6. I want you to turn to Revelation 18. If we look at Revelation 18, we see an example of this reversal that's taken place. There's been someone who, there's been a group of people who were happy now, who had been happy, and are now experiencing God's judgment and are weeping. And as we read a little bit of Revelation 18, I want you to see if you can see any parallels, any at all, between the fall of the city of Babylon and people's response to it, 
and our own culture today. Revelation 18, an angel comes down from heaven and makes this announcement. Fallen, verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. Verse 3, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Goes on. Says her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Verse 5, God has remembered her iniquities. Verse 9, and the kings of the earth who committed, committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Then they will stand far off and fear her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since, why are they weeping? Since no one can buy their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory. He goes on and on. Verse uh, 17, last half says, And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is in the sea stood far off and, and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What great city was like the great city? What happens here? There's been this rich, prosperous city. And all the kings of the earth have, have benefited from her prosperity. The merchants have benefited from her prosperity. The, the shipmasters and the sailors have benefited from her financial prosperity. They've rejoiced. And yet at all this time, Babylon has been an immoral place. It has been a place where unspeakable immorality takes place. And yet... People aren't mourning as that immorality takes place. What happens? God's judgment comes, and whenever God's judgment comes, then the mourning starts, the weeping. And there's no sense, we see in Revelation 18, there's no sense among the, the groups that John lists here that God's justice is rightly being received by Babylon. All there is, is what? Mourning because of the financial loss. Can you think of any parallels with our own culture today? You know, it's, it's July 4th, <laughs> and I think it's right for us to be very grateful for our nation and to love our country. Yet at the same time, we're ultimately citizens of a better country than this. This morning... What causes you to weep? What causes you to weep as you think about the condition that our country is in today? Romans 1 talks about God's, sometimes what we call God's passive judgment. Sometimes God allows a culture to pursue the immorality that they desire to pursue in order for them to, to reap their own sin on themselves. I read an article yesterday talking about how Illinois is, is in the worst fiscal state of any state in the union. And that's, that's saying something, right? As you think about the condition of our state, as you think about the financial condition of our country, what causes you to weep? 
Do you weep because of the, the loss in your 401k, the loss of your retirement, the, the loss of, of the physical pleasures of this world that, that you love so dearly? You say, you know what? I weep because of the immoral state of our country. I weep because of the, the injustice and immorality that exists in our culture. And if God is going to deal with that injustice through financial ruin, so be it. Or does your mourning only start when God begins his judgment? What you weep reveals where your heart is. What you weep over reveals whose kingdom you're truly a part of. Blessed are you who weep. And as you think about the condition of our country, as you think about the economic state of our country, I believe Revelation 18 has some amazing parallels. Do you know how extensive the financial, the financial uh, tentacles of the of the pornography industry is in our, in our country. It's estimated that, that worldwide, the, uh, these, you know, porn, uh, pornography generates more revenue than Microsoft, Google, Yahoo, um, Apple combined. In, in our nation, it's estimated, according to, to one uh, statistic that I read this last week, it's estimated that the revenues of, of the uh, pornography industry in our nation are greater than the revenues of ABC, CBS, NBC combined. And maybe you could even include them in that as well, right? <laughs> it's estimated, as you think about the internet, it's estimated that 12% of all websites contain immorality. $3,000 a second is spent on pornography. Two 0.5 billion emails are sent every day that have immorality in them. 25% of all search requests contain requests for immorality. 35% of all downloads uh, contain uh, pornographic uh, material. And listen to this, the average age, the average age of a child who views pornography on the internet is now 11. What causes you to weep? <laughs> what causes you to mourn? Is it the economic state of our nation? Or is it the fact that you look around and you recognize this is wrong? <laughs> the condition of our country, the condition of morality, the condition of our souls is in deep danger and, I, and it causes me to weep. Here's what Jesus is saying by way of application. You're fortunate. You're fortunate if the state of this present world brings you sorrow and a godly discontentment. You're fortunate. It means that you're not so in love with this current kingdom and you're not so in love with this current world that, that, that your love for God has been diminished. Let me give you just a couple examples of things that should cause you to weep. What should cause you to weep? Uh, kind of just three things here by way of application. One, the condition, the plight of those who are in need should cause you to weep. World Magazine had an article this, this past week about uh, the, the children in China and, and uh, the effect that China's one-child policy has had on, on those who are the, the weakest in their culture those who have physical or, or mental disabilities and, and how they're, they're still just, just being uh, left to, to die, these, these, these poor children. That should cause you to weep. 
Another thing that should cause you to weep is the, the state of, of unrepentant sinners, those who are in need of, of God's grace. In Romans uh, chapter 9, Paul says he has unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart as he considers the, the lost state of the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Another thing that should cause us, third thing that should cause us to weep and mourn, just, there, there are many we could list, but the third thing would just be our own personal sin. Paul says in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What causes you to weep? Jesus says, blessed are you who weep. You're fortunate that the state of this present world causes you sorrow and a godly discontentment. Let's look at the next blessing here. Verse 22, 23, blessed are you who are hated, we see in these verses. Verse 22, Jesus says, blessed are you, and then he gives kind of three thing, or four things that happen here. First of all, blessed are you when people hate you. That is, they, they detest you. They have a, an animosity towards you. And sometimes they, they can't even describe why they have this animosity towards you, but they really don't like you. Blessed are you when people hate you. Secondly, it's not just a, a passive hatred. It, it works into their, their, the way that they treat you. Secondly, they exclude you. That is, they separate you. There's social ostracism that takes place here. Thirdly, when they revile you or slander you, they say bad things about you. And then finally, when they spurn your name as evil, that is, they they look upon you as a person, they say, this person is evil itself. There's a progression there in the way that they treat you. There's a total rejection of you as a person. Why does this take place? There's an important modifier here. He says, uh, when they do that, why? On account of the Son of Man. That is, they look upon you as a Christian, they see your identity with Christ, you're following him, your faith is in him, and as they see that within you, they are repulsed by it. There's persecution taking place against you because of your righteous faith in Christ. Here's a quick quiz, okay? Let's say that you are in the workplace, and as you are in the workplace, a co-worker begins to take a great dislike for you. They don't like your sanctimo- what they refer to as your sanctimonious attitude. They don't like the way that you're uh, constantly this voice for righteousness in your division. And as they look upon you, they don't like you, and they begin to be very antagonistic toward you. And it starts off as just kind of some, some words that they say where you recognize, man, this person really doesn't like you. And then it gets more active. They begin to say bad things about you to your co-workers. They begin to accuse you of, of sabotaging projects, when in reality it's actually their mismanagement or, or their failure to complete their tasks. They begin to say terrible things about you in the workplace, and as they say these terrible things about you, it begins to make your workplace a very difficult place to to be in, and eventually, let's say it even costs you your job. Now here's the quiz. How do you respond? Do you respond with this bitterness? How dare they mistreat me? Or do you respond by retaliation? They want to play hardball, I'm going to play hardball back to them. Do you respond by slandering their name? How does a Christian respond when persecuted? Jesus gives us the answer in this verse, verse 22. He says, get them back. No, he says, be sad. No, he says, rejoice. When you're persecuted, believer, 
This is counterintuitive, and very few people do this when persecuted. Rejoice in that day. Is it a kind of a, well, yea, then I'm persecuted? No, leap for joy, he says. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? Why would you do that? He says, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. This is consistent with the testimony of the rest of Scripture. Romans chapter 8, 8 verse 18, sufferings, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, Paul says this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, beloved, here's the question. If you are not responding with joy when you encounter persecution, what is this saying about you? It's possible that it's saying you don't rightly understand God's kingdom or you're not rightly focused upon God's kingdom. The person who's rightly focused upon God's kingdom when they encounter persecution is going to rejoice. And if you're responding when persecuted with bitterness, with anger, with hatred, with a desire for revenge, then you don't rightly understand the economy of God's kingdom. Because the economy of God's kingdom says this, when you're persecuted, it's a good thing. Again, Jesus' words here are counterintuitive. When you're persecuted, that's when you should rejoice because you know that you're storing up reward for yourself in heaven. Furthermore, it tells you that you're on the, the right side as you encounter the persecution of the world because, Jesus says, in the same way that you're being persecuted, the people who's persecuting, their spiritual fathers also persecuted the prophets. Now, here's the problem. Verse 26 Woe to you, here's the woe, the alas, the watch out, the warning. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. When everyone says how great you are, when everyone has a high opinion of you, when everyone thinks you're very wonderful, that's the moment that you should be a little concerned. And why does Jesus say that? He says, woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And the potentiality here is that you are failing, you are failing in your task by God to be a proclaimer of his kingdom because you're not running to in, into any opposition. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that, um, what does he tell him? He tells him that all who desire to live, uh, 312, uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will encounter opposition from this world, right? Woe to you who are people pleasers, who don't encounter the opposition of the world, who have no one who is saying what you're saying is, is off, is wrong, who are rejecting it. Your counterparts, Jesus says here, are the false prophets. Listen to this couple passages in which 
God speaks against the false prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 5.31, it says, The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Oh, the people love the false prophets. They say great things. They're the the health and wealth gospel guys. But here's a minor problem. What are you going to do when the end comes and it turns out that what they said was false, what they called truth was a lie, what you trusted in is going to lead to your destruction? What is your end plan then? Ezekiel, or Jeremiah 23 Verse 16 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with what? With vain hopes. With vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. As citizens of God's kingdom, as those of us who have invested our lives in eternity, our task given by God is to boldly proclaim his kingdom. And you're blessed when you're hated. Why? Here's the application. You're fortunate, Jesus is saying, if you crave the reward of your king more than the approval of your fellow slaves. You're blessed. You're blessed, you're fortunate, you're privileged if you are more concerned about the approval of your king more than the approval of your fellow slaves. Our task is not an easy one. There are going to be times when people listen to our message and, and they reject us. It's going to cause divisions in our family. It's going to cause divisions in our, in our workplace. There are going to be times where we become very uncomfortable as we, as we give very, very difficult messages to people. And yet, and yet that's what God has, has called us to. Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul tells this to Timothy as he's talking about his proclamation of the word. He says, look, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. And then he says, here's some very difficult things you're going to have to do, Timothy. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. People are going to desire to have people in their lives, pastors in their lives, teachers in their lives, who tell them vain hopes, tell them fun stories and, and, and give, give kind of silly illustrations in order to make them feel good about themselves. It's not the task of a pastor to do that. It's not the task of kingdom servants to do that either. Yesterday I was watching Ellie, and Ellie was kind of making some, she's, this is our um, three-year-old, almost four-year-old, She's making some hand motions. I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm preaching. <laughs> I said, well, wow, what, what, are you, what are you preaching? She goes, I'm sharing Bible verses like Daddy does. I said, yes, that's expositional preaching right there. 
I said, well, what, what are you telling them? She says, I'm telling them everyone gets donuts. <laughs> said, not exactly fire and brimstone there, sweetie, but what's the job of a pastor? <laughs> Everybody gets donuts. Or to say, look, God's wrath is coming. <laughs> and more than the approval of you, I desire the reward of my king. And I'm willing to endure persecution. I'm willing to endure your disapproval in order to obtain the approval of my king. Now, this doesn't mean that we go around and just offend everyone we can. Uh, our task is to be very gentle people. <laughs> Yesterday or last week, uh, Whitney and I looked out our back window, and, and Whitney said, I think someone is, um, and this, if this was you, I, I don't mean to use you publicly in illustration. Uh, she goes, someone is out in our backyard or in our, you know, in our, in our, in our field there, and they're, they're, um, they're cutting away some of our vegetation. I looked back, and I said, yeah, sure enough. And they were really going at it. And she goes, maybe you should tell them that's, that's ours and, and ask them not to do that. I said, oh, okay. So I go out in the field, I come back, and she goes, Daniel, they're, they're still out there doing it. What did you tell them? I said, I told them thank you. Uh, you know, I... I I went out there with the intent of telling them to stop, but they were doing such a good job and didn't want to offend them, and I told them, keep going. No, uh, not the, so I don't think, once we talk about fearing the uh, approval or desiring the approval of men, we're not, and, and that, the danger of that, we're not saying just go out and offend your neighbors and, and do everything you can. We're saying this. When it comes to the decision between do I desire the reward of my king or the approval of my fellow servants, my fellow slaves, I'm always going to go with the reward of my king. That's my passion. That's my desire. Let me look at, let's, let's look at one more passage here, and then I'm going to give you some, some applications. If you would, turn to 2 Peter. I'm sorry, 1 Peter. 1 Peter this is one of my favorite passages here in chapter 1, and we're going to look at a short thing in chapter 2 as well. I refer to this frequently. It says this. It says, Blessed, verse 3, blessed be to the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercies. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, uh, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now you need to ask yourself, do I really believe that? Do I really believe that God has a reward for me, an inheritance waiting in heaven for me, waiting to be revealed in the last time? If I do, then blessed are you who are hated, because he goes on, he says this in verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Persecution, our trials, tests and proves the genuineness of our faith, and to the believer they are a precious thing. One more passage I want to kind of communicate to you as we talk about persecution in response to it. Uh, turn over just to chapter 2 in First Peter. As you encounter persecution, as you encounter the disapproval of, of men and, and women, uh, ask yourself as you go through that, am I encountering anything worse than what Jesus Christ encountered? 
is the injustice that I'm facing worse than the injustice that faced Jesus? And here's what Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 regarding Jesus' persecution. Verse 21, this you've been called, that is persecution, suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How does a person with a kingdom focus respond when persecuted? They continue to entrust themselves to the judge who judges justly. Let me close with a few points of application here as you encounter persecution. As you encounter persecution, my first, let me just kind of give you uh, five things here. The typical response when you encounter persecution is to going, going to become angry, to become angry, to become bitter, to defend yourself and desire to, to tear down the person who's, who's persecuting you. Here are the biblical responses, I believe, to persecution for a, a kingdom-focused person. The first is what? Well, what the text tells us, rejoice. Rejoice. When you encounter persecution, it's very simple. Rejoice. Acts 5.41, it says when the, when the disciples encountered the persecution, they rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And so when you encounter persecution, your knee-jerk reaction, your reflex should be to rejoice, that you have been considered worthy to participate in Christ's kingdom. Second thing to do, I would encourage you, is to... Involve yourself into, in some introspection. Ask yourself this question, why am I being persecuted? Why am I encountering persecution? Is it because I'm bearing the fruit of some of my own sin? Is it possible that I've, I've done something wrong to someone else and, and therefore I'm, I'm kind of encountering the, the fruit of my, my sin? Or is it because I, I truly have followed after Christ? And that affects, that affects how we respond as well. Sometimes our persecution is not as a follower of Christ, but as an evildoer. So rejoice firstly. Ask yourself some difficult questions about the persecution you're undergoing. Is this my own fault? Is, what is God trying to teach me? How can I glorify God through this? Thirdly, respond in, in prayer, Scripture tells us. Uh, praying for those who hate you, who persecute you. Your response should be a concern for the other person's soul. Fourthly, as you undergo persecution, God tells us that you should, you should contemplate the reward that awaits you. There's rejoicing, and in that rejoicing, there's, oh, I'm excited about the things that I'm going to receive as a result of this persecution. I'm excited about the closeness of fellowship that God is, is, is enabling me to experience as I, as I trust in him through this time of persecution. And then lastly, lastly, as you go through persecution, you should proclaim the hope that is within you. Paul says in Philippians, he, he rejoices as he, as he goes through persecution because it allows him to, to proclaim the hope that's within him, both to the people who are persecuting him and to all those around him. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of that persecution. Blessed. Blessed are those, happy are those, fortunate are those, privileged are those who find their satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom. 
the person, the man, the woman who finds their satisfaction in Christ and his kingdom is going to be one who responds with, with weeping as they consider the conditions of this current kingdom. They're going to be those who respond with joy when hated. It's counterintuitive to our culture, but it's the inevitable result of a person whose passion, whose joy, whose satisfaction is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the joy that is ours in your son Jesus. We pray that you'd cause our hearts to turn to you more fully. You'd remove those things in this world from our hearts that cause us to stumble in our passion for you. Give us your joy. We thank you for the life that's found in you through faith in your son Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.